And he mentioned that uh, he was trying to source uh, this book, Decision Making, The Will of God, and explained to me that this was the 25th um, sort of special golden edition. You know, they, uh, it was published 25 years ago, and this is the sort of republished edition. I've got the old copy. Mine sort of, my spine's all broken, pages are falling out everywhere. So I thought uh, I should get the updated version, right, and uh, uh, read it through and discover all the improvements that have been made to the book. Apparently there are quite a few. So I, I went off to uh, our local Christian bookshops and discovered that it was impossible right, to get this book in Australia for a period of a couple of months. And the reason for that was because every single copy that existed in Australia had made its way to Malaysia for this conference. <laughs> so this is now the, sort of the world capital for this book. Uh, apparently every, uh, every copy of it has found its way here uh, for your uh, benefit and privilege this weekend. Uh, they are both uh, excellent books, let me say. One is obviously quite a bit thicker than the other. Uh, that is true. But um, I think this book has in it some outstanding chapters. For example, when you come to uh, um, the chapter on when Christians disagree and how they go about disagreements, its analysis of uh, Romans 14 I think is one of the best I have ever come across, actually. It it uh, is really very, very helpful in terms of Christian. That's not so much on guidance, really. I suppose it is, but it didn't strike me that it was. But uh, it's still a great chapter, and uh, uh, this book is worth buying just for that, that alone. But th- its analysis. This one, I think, was the, uh, the forerunner to this one. This is sort of the, uh, the dummy's guide to this, if that makes sense. Not really, but uh, it, it it's sort of uh, goes to the heart of this book. But this one is... Uh, uh, still enormously worthwhile. I don't agree with everything in it, but um, what book do you agree with everything in it? But uh, it's still uh, enormously helpful. So let me encourage you to do that. Uh, I think Christians who are uh, serious about their faith have always got a book on their bedside table, apart from the Bible that they're reading. Uh, it's good just to be mulling over issues and bouncing them around. And uh, uh, so let me encourage you to think about grabbing a book off the table. Uh, actually, the table's loaded with terrific. Uh, books, so uh, do go and go and buy them when you have a break. Enough about the bookstore. Uh, I want to really talk this morning about the whole question of uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, and then apply that to a practical sort of situation. Uh, I'm aware that when we come to uh, discuss the work of the Holy Spirit, I have known you all for 24 hours, so you're all intimate friends now. Uh, not really, but I, I, so I don't really know where you're coming from, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, I don't know all your backgrounds, the experiences you've had, and I suspect that uh, this is quite an eclectic group of people. Uh, you come from all sorts of different you know, non-Christian, other religions, uh, other church situations. Therefore, as we come to an issue like uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we're not likely to line up on exactly the same place on the same page, is my guess. Uh, But as in all things, what we're trying to do is to come to God's word and together sit under this word and try and understand um, how God's spirit, how he operates in our lives. That's our desire. And uh, I want to do that particularly as it comes to this whole question of guidance. So I'm going to pray uh, that uh, the work of God's spirit in us today will be a unifying work. Because as I read the Bible, uh, what I discover is that we're... Where God's Spirit is present, there God's people are strengthened in their unity around the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to me to be the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's, I think, a a God-honouring thing to pray as we think about this issue. So let me pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, you are a great God, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you don't hide yourself from us. Uh, Father, we thank you that you've disclosed yourself in the most remarkable way in your Son, Uh, in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. And we look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus returns uh, to wind up the history of this world and where all things are assembled under his authority. And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you'll keep growing us in godliness so that we uh, continue to long to learn what it means to be faithful to you. Uh, Father, that's our desire. Therefore, we pray you'll be gracious to us now as we consider your word together. Uh, We pray it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You don't need me to tell you that there is enormous debate among Christians about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, You've all 
got friends or been in church contexts where you've experienced things and wondered what was going on. Uh, people disagree about the nature of the gifts that are available today. Uh, things like tongues and prophecy and healings are they for today? Some Christians think they died out in the first century. Some adopt a uh, uh, neither here nor there view, not died in the first century, but don't expect them today. Not quite sure where they've gone. You know, it's a uh, it's a very diverse sort of uh, landscape when it comes to matters of the Holy Spirit. It's also the case uh, that. Christians disagree about the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to guidance. What expectations should we have about God's Spirit and the way God's Spirit leads us uh, in this world? And some of you who are are perhaps uh, got more charismatic backgrounds or influences uh, might be thinking the view of guidance that I've put forward so far is a view of guidance that could be subcategorized as when the Holy Spirit goes on long service leave or holidays. You know, sort of a, you know, sort of a clinical, analytical approach to the scriptures, and uh, we just sort of park the Holy Spirit off in some some car park somewhere, and uh, he will come back with Jesus at the end of the age or something like that. Now, um, that isn't my view, uh, but uh, some people may feel that that's where I'm going with all this. Does the Holy Spirit have a role when it comes to our guidance? Uh, What is that role? Uh, How does the Spirit lead us? When we're praying about a decision, will the Holy Spirit give us a sense of uh, peace? Will the Holy Spirit lead us into the correct decision that we need to make? Will the Holy Spirit uh, be that still, small voice uh, that speaks to us? Will the Holy Spirit give us a clear sign that a decision we're thinking about is the right one to make? Um, How do we work those sort of things out? What we've discovered so far, point number one in the outline, is that God uses uh, many ways to guide his people. Uh, You read through the scriptures, you see there are talking donkeys, God speaks through a fire, there's riding on walls, uh, and our experiences at times uh, will indicate that God leads us in surprising ways. Uh, I talked yesterday about a sense of conviction when I was going for a job. Now it wasn't that God, it wasn't that God led me to apply for that job or anything like that. It was just a sense of this was the job I was going to get, and I got it. Uh, the, the firm had been interviewing people for three months. I didn't even know they were interviewing, and uh, I rang up. They made an appointment. I went in within a couple of days, and they contacted me three quarters an hour after the interview and offered me the job. You know, uh, now. I'm sure that God had his hand sovereignly ruling over that and it was a very gracious thing of him uh, to give me a window into the fact that uh, that job was the one I was going to get. Does God do that all the time? Uh, Not a huge amount in my life, let me say. Uh, It hasn't been the day-by-day experience. And that is the problem with what I've talked about, the descriptive, prescriptive issue in the Bible. When you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many examples of the way in which God speaks and leads his people. But is that the way in which we should expect to be led today? What if you turn with me just briefly to Acts uh, chapter 16? I've mentioned this incident, but I'll just take you back to it now. Acts chapter 16. read from um, verse 6 to verse 10. It's the Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia. Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, how how do you reckon Paul was prevented from preaching the word in the province of Asia by the Holy Spirit? I'd love you to talk to me about that afterwards if you know what it is because it doesn't tell us. Uh, We're not sure how that works, are we? But clearly the Holy Spirit had a role there with Paul. Uh, Verse 7, when they came to the border of uh, Mysia, uh, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. How did the Spirit of Jesus prevent them from going in? Well, I don't know, and we're not told. So all of us would be guessing. We continue on. Uh, So they passed by... Uh, Marcia went down to Trias. During the night, Paul had a vision 
of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, uh, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So he has a, a vision and then they conclude that it's a good thing for them to go. So the vision doesn't dictate what they do. Um, the vision is something they weigh and assess and then they take action on. It's a lovely little passage, though, in terms of um, the work of the Holy Spirit in a variety of ways. But um, is that for us today or not? Well, God can do that, of course. Um, there's no question at all he can. But he doesn't promise to do what he does with Paul. And the other thing is, whenever you see this sort of... Um, example of God at work in the scriptures uh, most often it's related to a significant phase in God's plan of redemption history in the world so with Paul, actually the apostles what we're talking about is the spread of the gospel into all the world you know, the, the uh, mandate in Acts chapter 1 uh, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth this is what's being fulfilled here and God is superintending that plan Powerfully, and his Holy Spirit is guiding that plan. Most of the decisions we're concerned about normally aren't tied up with the, uh, the plan and purposes of God for eternity and the spread of the gospel, in my experience anyway, when I talk to people. But I would expect, in the great scheme of God's evangelization of the world, that he would be at work in significant and powerful ways to guide his people in doing that. Uh, but possibly not whether I should buy the Audi or the BMW. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? So what's important to God, you'd expect him to be involved by the power of his spirit. The prescriptive-descriptive problem. You see it in scripture. It doesn't guarantee uh, that that's for us today. God does speak by his spirit. We're told he speaks by his spirit through the scriptures. The reason I want to draw attention to this is is because often... um, People talk about Christians being either sort of spirit Christians or word Christians, which, of course, is a mindlessly silly uh, distinction that the Bible never makes. For word Christians are spirit Christians, and spirit Christians are word Christians. You cannot separate the two. Can you separate the word of God that he, by the power of his spirit, uh, brings to people's lives and minds and hearts? Of course you can't. It's, a, it's not a very good distinction at all. Let me show you why, just from one passage. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Um book of Hebrews reads like a uh, a great long sermon or a series of sermons. There's lots of exhortation and encouragement to God's people to remain faithful, not to fall away. There's encouragement if they do fall away to come back. It's it's like a preacher uh, preaching a sermon. When you come to uh, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7, it's part of a, a warning against unbelief. We're told verse 7, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Uh, the Holy Spirit says, and then there's a quote uh, from Psalm 95, uh, urging God's people. That is, the Holy Spirit speaks through the scriptures. That's the consistent um, message we have in the Bible, that this is the word of God that by the power of his spirit he uses. So if you come over to, say, Hebrews 4, verse 12, the point is reinforced. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is the powerful word of God that by his spirit uh, convinces 
and changes and converts. Uh, that's the reality. God speaks by his spirit and he speaks by his spirit today powerfully every time we open the scriptures. That's our expectation. So let me move on. How are we led by the spirit? Because in the end, when we come to this question of guidance, this is the issue. How does God's spirit lead us? How does God's spirit take us places? The spirit-filled person is one who is led by the Spirit. That is the way in which the Scriptures speak. Come with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians 1 talks about the, uh, the great grace of God, the calling of people into the family of God. Uh, when you get to verse 13, it speaks about the, the work of the Spirit in conversion. Uh, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, you are sealed with the Spirit of God. You are marked out as his. That's his work at conversion. It's the same sort of point that's made um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, contentious sort of passage um, where it talks about spiritual gifts and all that sort of thing. It comes to uh, verse uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. And it says this, We're all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We're all given the one spirit to drink. Baptised in the spirit. When do you get baptised in the spirit? Well, actually, it's speaking about uh, something earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 3, it says, Therefore, I tell you, no one who is speaking by the spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's talking about one of the same experience. When you're able to confess Jesus is Lord, uh, that's when you become a Christian. That's when you're baptised in the Spirit. They're both equated here in this chapter. See, the work of God's Spirit is powerful at the point of conversion. That's when you are filled with the Spirit. There are other spots where it talks about um, God filling people with the Spirit. If you go through Acts of the Apostles, it's described at different points. There's only one spot in the New Testament where we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Commanded to be filled with the Spirit. That's in Ephesians chapter 5. Just flick over to that with me. I know I'm running around the Bible a little bit here. Just uh, hang in there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's the only spot in the New Testament where we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, where the expectation is that every Christian person uh, will be filled with the Spirit. What does it actually mean, though? In the context of uh, the book of Ephesians, you've got Ephesians 1 to 3, it talks about the powerful work of God in bringing people into relationship with himself and the significance of that. When you go to Ephesians 4 to 6, it's the outworking of that, um, that conversion experience. All right? So one is um, uh, bringing to the family of God. One is working out what it means to live in the family of God. So the command to be filled with the Spirit comes in that section of sort of walking in the Spirit, going on in the family of God. You see it at all sorts of uh, different points in chapters 4 to 6. Uh, back in chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about living a life worthy of the calling you've received. Chapters 1 to 3, all about the calling. Chapters 4 to 6, all about living worthy of the calling, following through on the sense of calling. Um, there are five times throughout chapters 4 and 5 where it talks about um, living consistently with that calling. The, the living word in the New International Version uh, is actually the word for walking. Uh, and I think that's a good picture of the Christian life. Uh, walking consistently with your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ 
So that comes up in um, verses 1, verse 17 of chapter 4, in chapter 5, verse 2, uh, verse 8, and verse 15. Walk worthy of your calling. Then when you come to chapter 5, where it talks about being uh, filled with the Spirit, it's a contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. The idea is it's a, uh, a matter of self-controlled, uh, serving not alcohol, but God himself. Uh, be filled. The commander is one that's ongoing. It's not be filled, that's it. It's be filled. Right? Go on being filled. That's the command for Christian people. Continue to be filled with his spirit as you go on. Right? What does it mean to be filled with the spirit? They have great discernment about spiritual matters. To uh, What is it? Well, the context always tells us. What's the context say to us here? Well, verse 15. Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Make music in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the context of living the godly life, of speaking the truth to each other in love, and of working out the truths of the gospel. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Godly living is what's on view. It's not about decision making. It's about godly living. What about being led by the Spirit? I'm spending some time on this because it is a matter of foundational importance when it comes to this issue of guidance. Filled with the Spirit means living the godly life. What about being led by the Spirit? There are two spots in the New Testament where we're called upon to be led by the Spirit. One occurs in Galatians chapter 5 and one in Romans 8.14. Let's go to the, um, the Galatians 5 passage. Let's flip over Galatians uh, with me. Again, context is important. There's quite a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit um, in Galatians. So um, you go back to Galatians 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Uh, the point's simple. That is, you become a Christian not by works of law, but by believing and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a work of the Spirit in conversion. It's really the same point that was being made over in Ephesians. And when you go over to uh, verses 25 and 26, 27, it talks about the the fruit of that conversion uh, being sonship being a freedom in relationship with God. When you come over to chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 2, it's exactly the same sort of picture. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Not freedom in the spirit. It's the same in verses 13 to 15 uh, of chapter 5. We're free. We're no longer slaves. That's who we are. And that freedom means we're not free to indulge the flesh, that is, to keep on sinning. That's the point. And then in verses 16 to 25, you have um, uh, seven mentions of the work of the Holy Spirit in just a a short ten-verse patch. And it's in this context uh, that we're told to be led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Where does the Spirit lead us? Well, it's verse 22 following. We get the information about that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, it's exactly the same point. Where does the Spirit lead you? 
into working out which job you get, what car you should buy, where you should live, uh, who you should marry. No, 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 no. Right? The Spirit leads you into godliness. That is the point of the work of the Spirit in this passage. If we went to Romans chapter 8, uh, we'd see there in verse 14, it talks about being led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, then you're sons of God. And verse 12 talks about uh, the sinful nature. Verse 13 talks about putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Okay. The work of God's Spirit is to lead us into holy lives that glorify God. That's where the Spirit is leading us. And the way in which God's Spirit leads us in, in that is through the Scriptures, highlighting the truth of God's Word for us today. That's how the Spirit guides us according to the revealed word of God. That's the way in which the New Testament uh, consistently speaks about the work of God's Spirit. Now, I have laboured that um, because when we come to this matter of how God leads us, um, it's like people have forgotten they ever read their New Testaments. They sort of revert back to a former mode or whatever they last heard on the topic. But, here is the reality. We are filled with the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We are led into God, godliness and holiness. That's the purpose. Okay. What I want to do now is move on to uh, a practical issue as we try and work this one out. And this is one that I think uh, Christians often feel very passionate about, whether they're uh, either married or unmarried. Principles of guidance in relation to the issue of marriage. I know we have a mixed group here. Uh, how many of us are married here? Just sick of your hand. Okay, which means the rest are single. Okay, or somewhere in between. Well, you know, single. I guess that'd be right. There aren't too many other options, are there? Okay. Uh, single or married? That's that situation. This is a huge issue, whether you're single or whether you're married. Because marriage is such a dominating issue for our lives, uh, whichever category you're in. Uh, your happiness, according to the world around us, depends on being married. Uh, or being happily married. Right? And the key to being happily married is the, uh, the right person, making sure you get married to the right person. That's the key, according to our world, when it comes to your future. Uh, when you look at the, um, the films that come out of uh, Hollywood, that's the picture you're presented with, right? If there's a couple married at the beginning of the film, what happens by the end of the film? They're divorced, okay? If they get married at the end of the film, why is that? because they're going to live happily ever after. It's actually a very simple equation. Don't get married until just before you die. All right? That's the secret, you know, obviously. Uh, it's, but it is strange, isn't it, the way in which uh, happiness and the way these sort of things work. But marriage is, um, for Christians, you know, the key. If you want to be sexually fulfilled, obviously you need to be married. Um, and the, the expectations on marriage in our world, they are enormous. Uh, within Christian circles at least the ones I come from, I think marriage is perceived to be the norm and uh, those who are single, and I in my congregation have a great number of people who are, are single, not yet married, possibly won't be married, don't know if they will be married. It's a, it's a huge issue uh, for people, uh, particularly at that sort of stage of life. The way our world perceives it is it's very hard to be emotionally fulfilled unless you're actually married. A lot of weight rests on this sort of issue for us. And, of course, as Christians, uh, we add um, an enormous amount to this decision because uh, we're Christians, therefore we want to marry the person that God has chosen for us. Uh, so we add a new dimension to this whole question of, of selection. Uh, and we know it's important, right, because we're so committed to marriage. That is, we, we know that within Christian circles um, we fail when it comes to marriage, but we aspire uh, to lifelong commit, commitment. So therefore marriage is a big decision. Fifty years of your life can rest on it. Okay? I've been married for 30 years and I'm not done yet. You know, it's a, you know, it's a big commitment, isn't it? Marriage. Right? It's, it's uh, one that uh, binds you together for a long period of time. And what I'm aware of these days is the way in which couples... Uh, before they get married, individuals are extraordinarily fearful of the commitment involved in marriage. 
Uh, I'm not sure exactly why it is. Maybe it's because uh, divorce is so much more prevalent and therefore we've experienced the cost of divorce. Uh, maybe it's that. I find with the, the men in Australia, particularly those who are, say, 25 to 40, uh, they seem incapable of making decisions about relationships. I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's the same here in uh, Malaysia or not. It's a great tragedy, I think. You know, um, So that you see uh, men and women in this sort of age group playing you know, funny little games with each other. You know, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure if she likes me. I'm not sure if he likes me. You know, and uh, and they go like that for 15 years, wondering. You know, and you sort of, and you think well, maybe they should ask. You know, uh, I don't know. It just seems like communication could be a thing here. Uh, you know, that it's it's an amazing, fearful, sort of tied up in knots, uh, sort of experience. And part of it is, I think, because uh, Christians have got all sorts of folk notions when it comes to marriage as well. Um, so that uh, one guy uh, took out my daughter. She's 20 years old, right? And I think it was, you know, on one of the first dates, you know, he said to her, of course, I'd never go out with anyone if I didn't think I could marry them. Oh, you know, <laughs> 20 years old and we might have a proposal coming on and I've only known him for five minutes, you know. It's, perhaps that's not the right approach, you know. Uh, perhaps you don't need to get married before you get married. Right? You don't need to decide, you know, sort of, hi, my name's George, who are you, Wendy? Wendy, would you like to get married? You know, I mean, maybe we should get to know each other first. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of strange notions that Christians have when it comes to this sort of issue and strange overcommitments they make, right? I'm asking you out for coffee because I want to get married to you, you know? Or perhaps we can take this a step at a time, you know, uh, coffee first, marriage later, uh, you know? <laughs> It's, do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, it's driven by good motives. We want to, you know, we're serious and we're committed, you know. But uh, we we just drive it far too hard often in uh, Christian circles. Yeah, that's probably just Australians. You guys probably don't have these sort of issues that are going on for you. I suspect you probably do actually. But um, right, we have all sorts of thoughts. And when it comes to marriage and sort of working out relationships, you then think. Yeah, wouldn't it be easier if God did just let me know who I was marrying? You know? So that, you know, you know, God tells me I'm marrying Mary Smith. Goodness, that takes a lot of the worry out of it. You know, I've just got to find Mary now. You know, um, it, it, you know, it would be much more straightforward at one level if God just gave us that sort of information. But God doesn't promise to do that in his word, does he? How does God lead us when it comes to marriage? Now, again, Hollywood doesn't help us much here, does it? How many of you have seen the, uh, it's an old film now, but it's a classic, uh, While You Were Sleeping, right? uh, Tom Hanks and uh, Meg Ryan. Okay, so an old film. Um, Sandra Bullock, wasn't it? Oh, it wasn't in Australia. I'm sure it was Meg Ryan in Australia. but <laughs> It's not okay, quite, look, uh, you know, we can have an analysis on this film later on, but uh, <laughs> let me let me draw it. There's a, there's a moment in the film um, where uh, the question is being asked: How do you know? How do you know if you're in love, right? And I can't I can't remember which character in the film says it. Bond says, "You know you're in love because when you're with the person you love, and you you interlace your fingers together when you're holding hands." You know you're in love if, if when you do that and you look down, you can't tell which fingers are his and which are yours. <laughs> huh? I mean, there you go. Need I say any more? You can thank me for this later on. Okay? <laughs> now, you understand what this means. You can never marry anyone where there's a gap of more than six inches in your height. All right? Otherwise, you could never work it out. You know, squinchy little fingers, long fingers, you know. You'd never be able to do it, would you? Yeah? Like, it's just a, a ludicrous idea. But the world is full of those sort of ludicrous ideas on how you work out how you get married and who you should get married to. Okay? It is a big decision. It's a huge decision, especially in our over-romanced, over-sexed, over over-fulfilled-by-marriage sort of culture. Right? We put enormous weight on this decision and its importance in life to us. 
How do you know who Mr. or Mrs. Wright is going to be? How does God help us with this decision? What is God's will? How does he lead us by his spirit when it comes to this matter of being married or choosing a marriage partner? Often I think we misunderstand the will of God in this area. Remember what's central for life? It's about glorifying God. The Lord Jesus Christ must be at the centre And the question to ask is, how does marriage fit here? What is God's will for me when it comes to marriage as in all things? You go to a place like Romans 1, verse 11. Here is God's sovereign will. Everything actually is conformed to the purposes of his will. Uh, Romans 8, 28 says exactly the same thing. God is at work for our good. Right? Our good in all things. God is at work for our good. That's what it says in Romans 8.28. Okay. How is God at work for my good when it comes to marriage? Then what do you think would be for your good when it comes to marriage? Well, you know, if you're a bloke being married to Miss Universe and uh, somebody pampers you all the time who attends Sue's session on how to love your husband, who you know, all those sort of things, you know. That's the ideal person you really want to uh, get married to, I'm sure, you know. Uh, how does God re- re- how does God's sovereign will work out in our lives? You see. God doesn't work very good. He's making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now will that happen uh, by being married to the most handsome man you can possibly think of? Uh, who is loaded with money and having 2.2 children and a, a Labradoodle and a BMW in the garage. or You know, I mean, what, what is for our good at this point? How does marriage fit with that plan? It has become more like Christ. And that means, in becoming more like Christ, it's unlikely to be straightforward. For uh, you don't become more like Christ without being put under a bit of pressure. One of the difficulties is we know God is sovereign, but what about his revealed will? I mean, why doesn't God reveal his will for us when it comes to marriage? And the thing here is that God doesn't promise to reveal his will to us. Um, God rules over all things. There's no question about that. But there's no guarantee in, in the scripture that his sovereign will, his knowledge and purpose for all things, will be revealed to us in detail. So, If I asked Andrew Cheer, for example, um, how did he know that he should marry Judy? Okay, How did you know you should marry Judy? Was this God's sovereign will for you, Andrew? Uh, Yeah, that's it. See, that's the point, isn't it? How do you know what God's sovereign will is? Well, if you're married, then you've got it. That's God's sovereign will. So it's been revealed to you at this point. How do you know the revealed will of God before you get married? Actually, you don't. And you can't. The reason for that is because, you know, you could be uh, on your way to the church and you get killed in a car accident. So you just didn't know that, did you? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, you can't. The person you're married to is the person God sovereignly wants you to be connected to. And up until that point in time, quite lucky you won't know. Okay, when it comes to making decisions about getting married, what does God's scripture say? His revealed will to us in scripture. Scripture is sufficient. That's the point we were looking at in 2 Timothy 3.16. Sufficient for godliness, uh, sufficient in terms of knowing everything we need to know from God's perspective uh, when it comes to honouring him. Okay, so what has God revealed to us about marriage and who we should get married to in the scripture? Let me say there's not a lot in the Bible on who you should get married to. Not a lot. Uh, But there are some keys on how you go about it. Firstly, first bit of advice, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8 and 9. I think this will be taken up one of the other seminars uh, just after morning tea. Verse 8 and 9. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay. Here's the first bit of advice if you go about getting married, right? Don't. Okay? Don't. Okay? Um, it's fairly simple. Solves the whole problem, really. Uh, don't. That is good to stay unmarried 
as I am, says Paul. And there are good reasons for getting married, he says. But if you, if you uh, uh, can stay unmarried, good, stay unmarried. Now, this is an important word in a sexed-up, marriaged-up society like ours, all right, where the only way you can possibly be fulfilled and have purpose is to be married. Now, that is absolute garbage. Now, the norm, I think, is that people do tend to get married. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But it's not the key to life. It's not the key to happiness. Paul says it is good to remain unmarried. Read through this chapter and see why it's a good thing to remain unmarried. It may not be for you, but it's a good thing. Right? He goes on, apart from a, a don't, saying singleness is a valid option, he goes on and says, uh, what you should do is make sure you marry someone of the opposite sex. Now, that's an obvious thing. If you come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just the previous chapter, uh, Corinthian church had a huge problem with immorality. Uh, if you went back to chapter 5, you'd see that a man had shacked up with his mother-in-law um, and was living with her. I mean, there, was, there were huge issues that they were wrestling with. Uh, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry, verses 9 and 10. Don't you know that the wicked won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, God's purpose in marriage, Genesis chapter 2, is for a man and a woman. Uh, I was reading an article or hearing on the radio uh, just this week about a couple more states in the United States where same-sex relationships have been approved and, uh, and that, that is contrary to the will of God. And it is, from a Christian perspective, contrary to the will of God. God says, good to be single, uh, but if you're getting married, it's to be someone of the opposite sex. Right? Simple instruction that we can't take for granted uh, these days. The person should be free. Um, what I mean is, if you're thinking about getting married, it's best not to marry someone who's already married. Okay? There's a problem with bigamy. But also there are other passages in the New Testament where the whole issue of whether someone is um, free to, to marry because they've been married before comes up. Now, I don't want to go into detail on this. I'm also aware that there'll be people here for whom uh, this is a reality for them, something they've had to wrestle with personally. Um, my own view is that uh, divorcees can remarry, uh, so don't, don't get me wrong on that front. But there will be situations, I think, where uh, it won't be appropriate for someone uh, to marry someone who's been divorced before. All right? So it's just a question that's got to be asked. The person should be free, able to be married. The person should also be a Christian. Now, this is very, very important as I speak to a group like this. Come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And verse 14. Um, I don't think, let me say, this passage is particularly devoted to the whole question of marriage. Um, but I think the principle here applies to marriage, if I can put it that way. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? If you're a Christian and you're going to get married, um, you should marry a believer. Uh, now, apart from anything else, it's just common sense. When Sue and I uh, were going out, neither of us were Christians, and she became a Christian. And she came to a point of conviction that she should break up with me because I was no longer a Christian. That made no sense at all to me. I thought it was just sort of, you know, crazy language coming from a delusional, religiously-minded woman. I didn't say that at the time, but it seemed that way to me. Uh, Okay? But it was absolutely the correct thing to do because at that point the most important person in Sue's life was the Lord Jesus Christ 
the most unimportant person in my life was the Lord Jesus Christ. I was living in rebellion against him. I had rejected him. I had no interest at all in him. Now, let me say, even for people who are, you know, sort of not anti-Christian, right, they're still rebels against God. That is their situation. So, a believer and an unbeliever have diametrically opposed views on the whole universe and the world and our purpose as God's people, right? They, so that we have nothing in common at all at that point. And so it is a great step of folly to think about entering into a relationship with an unbeliever. And generally the only reason why Christians do engage with unbelievers, that is go out with them and eventually marry them, is because they are idolatrous. Let me, just in case I was too subtle then, uh, it's because they actually worship the person they are marrying rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure, I might have been too subtle again, but do you understand what I'm saying? That is, to get married to an unbeliever is to say that person is more important to me than God himself because I'm prepared to ignore his word for the sake of doing it. And the reason I do it is because I'm an idol worshipper of marriage and if I can't find a believer to marry, I'll marry an unbeliever to actually sort out the problem. That is the height of rebellion. It's not the unforgivable sin, don't get me wrong, but it is foolish. Now, I don't just speak as a theoretical expositor of the Bible at this point. I speak of it as a pastor. There's seen people who have shipwrecked their lives on this reef. Um, I have a man in my congregation whose wife died the other day. She was about uh, 78 when she died. He became a Christian. They got married and um, he became a Christian after they got married. And he lived for 35 years with his wife who was antagonistically opposed to his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was horrible. It was the pain that that man went through because of that. To actually choose to get into a relationship where someone doesn't believe, doesn't hold the most important thing in life uh, that you do, is highly sinful. Uh, if you're contemplating it, don't. Um, you know, and just be determined that you will not fall into this error. The other thing is, when you're getting married, um, even to a believer, think through whether you actually share the same gospel conviction. Um, I've also seen, and this particularly seems to happen with godly women, they marry men who are much less godly than themselves, don't share the same passion for ministry, and the drive and concern to serve the Lord. And again, it's an enormous frustration to them uh, to be married to a man who might be converted but just doesn't have the same heartbeat. Uh, It seems to me that the women most often get caught by that. Maybe the women are more godly than the men in my church, not your church, but uh, that is an issue as well, right? Don't be foolish when it comes to those sort of issues. Okay, Uh, here we have God's instructions on marriage, right? Don't get married, good option. Um, should be of the opposite sex, the person should be free, the person should be a Christian. And I don't think that there's much else in the Bible and the New Testament that talks about who you should get married. So what I'm saying is the scripture is sufficient. What God has given us here is sufficient for you to work out who you should marry. Okay. Now, how many of you are single again? Just stick up your hands. All right. All right. There's quite a few of you. All right. Now, uh, I'm assuming most of you are Christian, uh, most of you have the opposite sex from someone else in the room, uh, and you're unencumbered, all right? So, what I'm saying is, morning tea, you just find someone and say, guess what? <laughs> all right? This is your lucky day. Uh, okay. Now, I'm not really saying, but I am saying that in terms of God's will for your life, uh, you've come within it if you've actually understood these requirements. You've actually come within his, what's called his permissive will. There are things you can do outside of his will. You can marry a non-Christian. You can, you know, there are those, but 
But in the framework of his purposes for you, that's what he wants you to do. Marry someone of the opposite sex, is unencumbered, is a Christian. Right? Now, people can go, well, that doesn't help at all, right? There are 15 blokes in this room I could get married to. I'm not helped at all, right? But actually you are, you see. And you've been given a great freedom from God in order to be able to work it out. Because God, see, you're saying, well, should I marry George or should I marry, you know, Barry? <laughs> and God is saying, goodness, just marry either of them. I don't care. Uh, God does care for you, let me say that. But, you know I mean, it's, there's a freedom there when it comes to this sort of issue. What we discover in the New Testament is, and this is a good time for marriage if you've been tuning out for a bit to tune back in, um, what we discover in the New Testament is there's not much emphasis put on how to get into marriage. But there is an enormous emphasis on how to live as a married person. Enormous emphasis. Come with me to um, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses, uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 following. There's a great section on um, how to live as godly, godly men and women just in the church in relationship with each other. And then it's followed by words uh, for wives and husbands. Let me just, just read it. Because what I'm saying is the key is not how you get into marriage, as long as you obey God's word at this point. The key is how you live in marriage. Right? Hollywood says... Okay, get married at the beginning of the film, you'll divorce for sure. Get married at the end, you'll be fine. The whole emphasis on who you get married to. Right? If you get that right, everything will be fine. Just marry the right person and you'll have a happy, successful, flourishing married life. Right? And that is complete garbage. Right? Because it doesn't matter how well suited you are to the person you marry from all sorts of different perspectives. The key to marriage is not the selection, but the living with. Right. Now, let me talk to marriage at this point. If you think that is the case, just nod your heads. Right. Is the key to marriage living with the person rather than the selection of the person? Yes, it is. You know that if you're married. That's what it says in Colossians. Therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you grievances you may have against one another forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God and whatever you do whether in word or deed, do it all in, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, and on it goes. Gives the instructions for us all, verses 12 to 17, and then it selects some categories of people and applies it particularly into their situation. Right? That's what uh, we're being told about here. Our problem in our culture is there's been a shift to romance as the key to marriage. Right? How do you know Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Well, you won't be able to tell which fingers he is and which yours, you know. That's the secret, you know. Uh, how do you know the person you should marry? Well, there are profound comments like, well, you'll just know, won't you? Hmm. Most helpful. You know, you just, no. You know. I heard, that's enormously useful, isn't it? The story of Luther is a great one, I think. Uh, where when he, in the Reformation, he was uh, rescuing a whole stack of nuns out of their, uh, their context and promised each of them, when he rescued them out of a monastery, that he would arrange uh, marriage partners for them. And at the end of the day, there was one nun left over uh, by the date he said he'd find partners for them all. And so he married her. Now, we're not told whether she set this up or not. She may have been a very clever woman and uh, had, her, uh, had her eyes fixed on Luther, I don't know. But, but what he did was, at the end of the day, he couldn't find a marriage partner for this particular woman, so he married her himself. And apparently they had a very effective and successful marriage. 
throughout the history of our age, often marriages have been arranged and uh, there's not much romance involved in marrying someone you don't know. Um, And yet you can have a successful and effective marriage in that situation. The problem with our culture is we have moved into a culture of enormous choice and it's swamped by marriage. And that's meant people are making much more successful marriages now than what they were years ago. Mm, wrong. They're not. Like, marriages are fracturing at a faster rate around the world, and I suspect in this country too, than ever before. The romance doesn't guarantee a good marriage. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, all passages about growing in love and service and commitment to the person that you're married to. Now, is it a place of wisdom? Okay, we, uh, we come within God's will. We're, we're within the framework of God's will for our lives. I've narrowed it down to 36 you know, men or women that I can marry. You know, uh, but which one? Right? Uh, how do I work out where to go from here? There is a place for wisdom. No question about that. Uh, That is, when you're trying to get married, how should you go about it? Well, here are some pointers, I think. Uh, If you're going to get married, marry someone who is godly and encourages you to grow more like Christ. Uh, If you're a Christian, that's a good thing to look for. Uh, Do they encourage me to grow more like Christ? You'd look to a place like Ephesians 5. Uh, If you're thinking about getting married to a man, do you respect him? Do you respect him and his ability to provide a godly leadership within your household. Does the person you're thinking of marrying, if he's a man, lay down his life for you on a regular basis? Is that clear that he has a servant heart? Or is he someone who expects you to serve him? Be wise. Do you share ministry goals? I spoke about that before. What do other Christians who know you well and your parents tell you? Now, as a parent of a 22-year-old and a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, uh, I think I have very good insight into my children. Right? When I was that age, I thought my parents knew nothing, uh, let me say. But now I think parents know a lot, actually. Uh, <laughs> very different. It's funny how it turns around like that. Right? But it's true, actually. Your parents, if they uh, are people with insight, know you well. And they will give you good advice on uh, people you might be thinking of getting married to. Listen to them, Okay. We shouldn't get married like the pagans do. 1 Peter 3 talks about immorality. Um, I don't know if it's the same over here, but uh, Christians in Adelaide, they get confused. Right? We're simple people. We try hard, but we struggle. Okay? Um, that is, we're incapable of distinguishing between marriage and not marriage. It's a funny thing, really. You would think we'd be good, better at it, but we're not. Okay? So I have couples who start going out, and they're going to get married. Okay? And they say, well... Because we love each other, okay, and we're going to get married, we'll have sex before we get married. Huh? It's category confusion. When do you get married? When do you get married? You get married when you get married? Uh, I know that's obvious, but it's true. Yeah, it's like, when did I get married? I, I got married when I stood before people and I said in public to Sue, I will serve you and love you and be committed to you for the rest of my life. Okay? That's when I got married. I can get married when she was walking down the aisle. I didn't get married a week beforehand. I didn't get married when we got engaged. Before you get married, you are friends. You aren't married, you're friends. The Bible only has two categories of relationships. You're either friends or you're married. And friends don't have sex together. Married people do. So you need to have clearly in your mind godliness as the call for a Christian people. And we need to have clearly in our mind the difference between being single and being married. When, yeah, all the time, um, I have couples who aren't married who behave like they are. That's a foolish thing to do and it's a godless thing to do. Right? Before you get married, you're friends. That's what you are. That's the category you're in. Okay? Just have that clearly in your mind. Okay? Is attraction a good thing? Uh, like how important is it to be physically attracted to the person you want to marry? Uh, yeah, I think it's a bonus myself. Uh, I'm in favour of it. Uh, but that is, it'd be silly to get married. You know, you repulse me, I'd like to get married. It doesn't work really, does it? You know. um, you know, it's just, you know, it's, so it, it, you'd want to see some sort of spark uh, 
uh, between a couple on that front. There's the, dis- the issue of temptation and that sort of thing when that's the case, but it's still, um, it, it, it's still is. And, and often I'm surprised by the attraction people have for each other. I've seen some very unusual couples uh, that uh, they've gotten married, you know, and, but they obviously have enormous love and attraction for each other. And that's part of God's providence, I think, for people. So that's, um, that's uh, part of the issue of wisdom as well. Um, I, I think just, just, is romance a part of love? Um, what place does romance have in a relationship when you're working out whether you should get married? I, I think it should be there. You know, I'm an old romantic at heart. Uh, not really. <laughs> when uh, Sue and I had our, was it our first or our second wedding anniversary? First? First, right? Sue loves getting flowers, right? Absolutely loves getting flowers. I can never work at the point of giving a woman flowers. I mean, why would you give her something that's already halfway to being dead, you know? Uh, so, typically a male sort of approach, I suppose. But uh, So, on our first wedding anniversary, you know, we wake up and I presented Sue with six packets of flower seeds, right? She was, she was touched by this romantic gesture. <laughs> I actually did provide some flowers as well, but uh, it's not my fault actually, it's my father's fault, I blame him. Uh, when I gave my, my, my wife flowers on one occasion, my father and my mother were there, and uh, he said, if you must give flowers to your wife, make sure mine's not around when you do it. <laughs> so, uh, it's, all, it's either genetic or learnt or something like that, not my fault. Romance is actually a good thing in a relationship. Okay, should there be supernatural guidance? Do you, you know, can God tell you the person you're going to marry? I, I think you actually can. There were some people at college when I was there. Um, there was a woman who said that she was single, not thinking about getting married, had no intention of getting married really. And then she had a dream. And in this dream, uh, she had a communication from God that she was going to marry a man and God gave her the name. Bart Vanden Hengel. Bart Vanden So she she got the name, you know. And the thing was, she didn't even know the guy and had never heard of him. Bart Vanden Hengel, you know. (laughs) So she thought it was very strange and sort of, you know, dismissed it really. And she was actually working on a mission station. Uh, And then a couple of uh, months later, who should roll into the mission station but Bart Vanden (laughs) Hengel? It got her wondering. So she introduced herself. Hi, I'm, I'm going to be your, your wife. You know, no, she had a few more brains than that. But, you know, but eventually they did get married. You see? Uh, God can do that, sure. Did the fact that God had revealed that to her guarantee the marriage? No. Oh, no. See, if I was to tell you they're now divorced, how would you feel? Actually, I don't think they are. But it, it could be the case. See, the, knowing that information doesn't guarantee the relationship. See, it's whether they are committed to serve and love each other in marriage and be committed to that relationship for better, for worse, sickness, health, rich or poorer. That is the, uh, the way in which marriages stick together. Will you have a feeling of peace? You know, you'll just, who should I marry? Will you, you'll just know, won't you? Feeling of peace. A couple of times the Bible talks about having peace. Uh, Colossians 3, that passage we were just reading, it talks about the peace of God which passes all understanding. It's not talking about some sort of inner feeling in your gut. It's talking about the peace of God that rules over the lives of God's people when they live in harmony with each other. That's what it's, talking. it's not talking about marriage at all or applying it to any situation where if you feel okay about it, it must be all right. Uh, that's not the sort of thing that the Bible talks about. Friends, what I've been saying yesterday and today is that God's scripture, God's word, it is sufficient for us to make godly decisions. God in his providence has given us what we need uh, so that we can live as his children. All the important things, no secret things. You won't get to heaven and God will say, my goodness, you know, I, I told you you were supposed to marry Mary. Why did you marry Jane, you dummy? You know, um, you know, it won't be like that, okay? That's not... God has revealed to us the important things for living a godly and faithful life 
with him. The Spirit leads us. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You're to be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit leads us. Where does the Spirit lead us? Into godliness. Right? See, what's a Spirit-filled marriage look like? It looks like a husband laying down his life for his wife, concerned to present her wholly before the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, willing to sacrifice himself for her sake in a constant, constant way. That's what it looks like. What does it look like for a, for a wife uh, to be spirit-filled and spirit-led in her marriage? Well, she'll be a woman who respects and honours her husband. He doesn't uh, demean him in any way, but thinks how he, she can do whatever she can to grow him more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it will look like. That's the work of the Spirit in a marriage situation. Friends, the, the framework is clear and the work of God's Spirit is clear. The Word and the Spirit all point in the same direction. Right? We're to grow more like the Lord Jesus Christ and our marriages uh, to reflect that as well. Right? I hope that you're encouraged as we think about this whole question of guidance. Encouraged because there is an enormous liberty and freedom that we have in serving our great God uh, because his word guides us and makes it clear where we should be heading. And uh, once you appreciate that more and more, there's a great joy in living the Christian life, great privilege and freedom for doing it. I'll pray, then I think it might be time for, uh, for small groups. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you that you've given us your spirit. And Father, we pray that uh, we'll be people who are given over to the work of that spirit, uh, that you'll grow us in godliness and truth and in faithfulness. Father, I pray for those who are married here, that you'll keep enabling them to grow in love for each other, uh, to be husbands and wives who are committed to serving and laying down their lives, respecting and honouring. Father, I pray for those of us who are single. I pray that you'll cause us to be spirit-filled and spirit-led, that is, that we'll be holy and pure, that we'll be blameless in our relationships. Father, for those who are longing to be married and aren't, I pray that you'll keep helping them to trust in you, the shepherd who cares for his sheep, to know that you have your hand upon their lives and love them intensely. Father, I pray that in the meantime, um, that as single people, uh, you will encourage them to keep serving you and honouring you and building up others. And that um, by your generosity, you might provide uh, for marriage partners for those who desire to be married. Uh, Father, we thank you that marriage is a good gift. We thank you that singleness is a uh, good gift for serving you as well. We pray that you'll help us uh, to honour each other in our relationships together as singles and marrieds so that we will glorify you uh, by living at peace and unity with each other. And Father, we, we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.